Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Save the World. Wavy and I earlier we were going through a bunch of episode ideas that we wanted to cover for this season. And the emissions trading scheme was something that New Zealand has as part of its approach to meeting its um, carbon budget obligations internationally for things like the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, And it's something that we really knew very little about. So we thought we should get an expert on to explain it to us. And I thought, who better than the Minister for Climate Change, co-leader of the Greens, James Shaw. So I gave him a buzz and he said, totally fine. (laughs) Let's have a chat. So James, hi, welcome hi. to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I did. I, I have to caution this by saying you're making a quite a leap uh, in assuming that I'm going to be able to explain the emissions trading scheme. <laughs> this is uh, what I have encountered. Off to I, a strong start. I thought that I would give myself a couple of days to prepare for this, put a few hours and get myself up to speed on this program. Um, I noticed after the first 30 minutes that that would be wholly insufficient. Yeah. So... What I would love to do is have a kind of high-level discussion in terms of not like getting into the nitty-gritty, but start with really what the very basics of this thing is and how New Zealand's version of it works. So I just would like to open by saying what is an emissions trading scheme? Okay, there's, there's two ways to put a price on pollution. One is a tax and the other is you create a market. With a, with a sinking lid, and that's the difference, right? So the emissions trading scheme is a market that has been created in Aotearoa, New Zealand, whereby companies that um, pollute the atmosphere face a price penalty on that pollution. In order to meet that, they have to uh, essentially buy a credit from the market. Credits uh, come from people who plant forests. So they say, you know, because a forest soaks up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, I can actually remove the carbon dioxide that you put into the atmosphere, therefore you buy a credit from me. Gotcha. Right. So that, that's, the, that's the very basic idea. I planted a tree, so I got a ticket for that. Yep. Someone can buy my ticket who pretty much puts carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah. And then over time, that kind of, um, if we think of like a pie chart, that the whole pie shrinks, which brings down our carbon, carbon output. That's the theory. Okay. <laughs> the problem was, or one of many, many problems with our particular scheme, is that the government never put a cap on it. Right. right. So the pie never got any smaller. Um, In fact, the pie got bigger. Yes. So we had a promise to reduce our carbon emissions as part of the Kyoto Protocol down to 1990 levels, mm. I think within 20 years or something like yeah. that. But instead, our carbon emissions went up over the period. Yeah. So th- there's the <laughs> that's a really complicated story. Um, but weirdly, both of those things are true. So we actually met our obligations uh, for that, that 5% below 1990 levels. Uh, and also our emissions went up. And that's because we were buying these credits from overseas to bring them into our country? Yeah, and also because we're using different methods of accounting, mm. um, and that makes life particularly complicated. Um, my understanding is there's about 35 countries that have an emissions trading scheme yes. in the world right now. Yeah. Are you aware of unique features of New Zealand's one versus other countries that make ours different? Yes. So, I mean, there are a few things 
um, what, one of the things that's uh, I th- I think it's unique to New Zealand, um, and if it's not, then there would be very few other, very few other countries that do it. So, um, is, is actually that is this use of forestry to offset our emissions. So, in a number of other schemes, what they do is, let's say uh, I'm a steel mill and you know I put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, um, and you're a steel mill and you also put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, but you've worked out a way to put less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere per unit of production than I have. Right, because you've got new technology or some intellectual property or something. I've got like a that. greener factory. You've got a greener factory. It. That's right. What you can do, but it's going to cost you money to build that technology into your existing process, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say that costs a hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, in an, in other schemes, what you can do is you can package that reduction up, your future reduction of you know by implementing the new technology, and you can sell that into the marketplace. Yes, so right. I I was reading a bit about that in my in my homework for this. So it's if you're preventing future pollution from going right. in, that also gets recognised as a credit. Yes, that's right. So then what I do because I don't have your particular brilliance and intellectual nous, I go oh bugger that I'm going to have to buy because I'm going to keep polluting at the same rate. I'm going to buy the credit that you've generated mm-hmm. by reducing your emissions. Right now in New Zealand we don't do that. Right, because what we what we what we say in our system is, well, you kind of shouldn't be polluting in the first place, right? So any pollution that you put into the atmosphere attracts a price, mm-hmm. and the only way to get paid in the system is by actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, the the those two systems, one of those works well for reducing a country's net greenhouse gas emissions, mm-hmm. right? That's the New Zealand system, well designed for reducing our net emissions because I, I pollute, you extract, you know, um, sequester carbon, uh, and that nets out. <clears throat> um, and then the other, the other scheme where you use new technology to reduce your emissions, that's good for re- reducing gross greenhouse gas emissions rather than net greenhouse gas emissions. Is that clear? Um, in, a, in a way... I'm probably only familiar with gross and net because I worked at Inland Revenue for a couple of years, um, very close to this building, actually. Important. <laughs> Important very, life skill. It is. It's actually <laughs> helped me way more than I thought it ever could. So we don't have that as part of our system, right. that the greener factory gets to create some credits because they've prevented that, some, some carbon from going in they there. They don't, but they of course they face a reduced financial penalty, right? So if if you if you... With your flash new steel mill, only put, you know, half the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that I do, then you only face half the financial penalty that I do, mm. and so that's in our system that's seen as that's the financial that's, incentive, right? Right? Is like you can go, okay, well, obviously I want to reduce my liability, so I'm going to invest in new technology to do that. Um, new Zealand has an emissions trading scheme. Some other countries do not. How does it work when we're trading goods and services on the international market to recognise that fact? Because it would seem to me that New Zealand exporters could be at um, what some people could describe as an unfair disadvantage yeah. because they have to account for this carbon cost, whereas some other country that doesn't take climate change as seriously and doesn't have a programme, that's not costed into their production. Yeah, and and this is the thing is that there are some industries, there are a number of industries that are what we call um, emissions-intensive trade exposed, right? 
and and I, I kind of steel is the easiest example of that because yeah. you can produce steel in a lot of different countries and a lot of different countries do uh, produce steel and some of those put a price on carbon emissions and some of them don't um, and so that does what the, what that that then leads to a risk which we call carbon leakage which is we can say in New Zealand well we'll let's we'll um, close down our steel mill, and that'll reduce New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions, which is awesome, mm-hmm. um, unless you work at the steel mill. Uh, but the problem is we still use steel. Yes. So then we're importing steel from another country that doesn't put a price on carbon emissions and probably also actually doesn't have as clean a process as we do. And so then globally, uh, actually, greenhouse gas emissions go up, even though New Zealand's have gone down. So the way that we manage that is um, the government basically gives a free allocation of emissions units to those companies and says, well, you know, in recognition of the fact that you are exposed, Mm -hmm. we're going to reduce your liability by 90%. So you've still got a price at the margin of 10%, which is really just to kind of encourage you to Along. It's almost so they have some metric that's to right. work towards, right? So they can see yeah. what their emissions are and try and adjust their processes. Yes, that's right. Because actually the price that they're exposed to is probably less than what they're paying for electricity. But, you know, some of these businesses are in quite tight financial situations because the global commodity market and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so any marginal cost that they can reduce is still quite a good incentive uh, where they can. So that so that's what we have a, a free allocation system. Now there okay. are issues with that, right? Right, um, which are many and many and very complicated. But um, but that's the basic idea. How wide is the net that the government casts to to catch those um, trade exposed uh, intensive industries? Like who are we talking about? Steel pr- metal production. We've yep. got a aluminium smelter yep. here. So you have steel, so. aluminium, methanol. So Methanex in Taranaki uh, is one of the big ones. There's sort of about five really big ones, and then there's a whole lot of small ones. Mm. So tomato growers, for example, in the South Island who are growing in hothouses, uh, um, many of them use coal to heat those hothouses. Right. You know, because it's cheap. cheap and they put those coal boilers in before anybody had heard of climate change, you know. Um, and so they they have they have had an allocation, although that's winding down. Right. Yeah. And I guess this is the thing with the system is that you can adjust it over time yeah. to reduce. That's right. So one of the things that we did in the last term is we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to phase this program out, mm-hmm. but we're going to phase it out over a really long time period. When you say this program, you're talking the about free allocation. the allocation. Oh, no, the, the free, free allocation, allocation program. Right. So we're going to say, so every year from now on, we're knocking 1% off your free allocation right. for the first 10 years until 2030. And then after 2030, we're going to knock it off at 2% a year. And then after 2040, we're going to knock it off at 3% a year. And so... <clears throat> and that's because we assume that technology will get better and better and better yeah. over time. And so there's no particular reason, you know, for it to, you know, like a decade or two out, there's not, you know, probably no good reason for that program to exist. Yeah, right. But there are some things like we should be getting those tomato growers off coal as fast as possible because there's an alternative technology which is available at not too uh, steep a price point. How? 
does one measure the carbon sequestering abilities of a tree? <laughs> well, this is something I actually don't know the, the finer details of, but Scion, who are our forestry um, kind of research, uh, scientific research centre, do a lot of this work. Uh, and um, basically what they do is they stick a tree I'm going to do a horrendous disservice to the good scientists who do this. We're simply I, boiling it, it down so that I can understand what's yeah, going on. Yeah. You can use my lack of understanding as No, I'm, just, I'm going to get hate mail from a scientist, which I, I don't like. Anyway. Uh, I hope they, we've got a lot of scientist listeners. They basically stick it in an oven. They, they take a tree, they stick it in an oven, they burn it. Right. And, they, and then they measure how much carbon dioxide is, you know, c- comes from the, from the, the tree. Mass of from the mass tree. of that's right. Um, and so, you know, that, that again is a horrendous oversimplification. Um, and so then you have, you know, things like how fast does a tree grow? In other words, you know, how quickly can it absorb uh, carbon dioxide? Um, things like how dense is it? You know, how dense is the wood? That makes a difference to its ability to, to sequester, um, although that's not, not the only variable uh, and so on. So, you know, that's why you end up with, um, under the emissions trading scheme, there are some trees that are heavily favoured because they grow quickly and they sequester a lot of carbon in a short period of time. Um, other uh, forms of forestry um, take a long time, but it's thought perhaps over the longer term mm. that they actually end up sequestering more carbon dioxide. So Interesting. Yeah. So the way that we currently measure it, we, we put it into an oven and we can measure the carbon coming off of that mass of a tree and then go, well, per um, cubic metre maybe of a tree, this mm. is how much carbon that kind of tree c- contains. Yeah. And then we can gross that up for a forest. Yeah. Um, is there any recognition in the ETS in New Zealand of the importance of native trees? Yes, there is. But one of the issues that we've got is that native trees uh, sequester carbon at a much, much slower rate yeah. than uh for example, eucalyptus trees or um, pine pine trees. To, yeah. to sort of say the implicit but out loud, um, just for people who have never kind of gotten into the ETS stuff before, obviously we go, we go trees are great because they soak up carbon from the atmosphere um, and the government recognises that through this scheme, through the ETS. But if there's no recognition of native trees and their importance to the local um, biodiversity and local ecology in New Zealand, then there's an incentive to basically rip out all of our native forests and just plant lots of, for example, pine, which um, would there's, there's, the carbon. There's not yeah. an incentive to rip out our native forests because they are, if you, do, if you cut down a forest, then you're liable for the um, carbon dioxide that would have been soaked up by that forest. Right. So... Um, one of the further complications of this scheme is what we call pre-1990 forests. Uh, and so what we said is that there, there's a line, you know, and that's the year 1990, um, and we'll kind of manage everything after that point and we'll kind of write off everything before that point. So we, it sort of says... The 1990 point was us going, we want to try and get to this level, is that right, of carbon? Yeah, well, that, it's, it's kind of like the baseline year, Yeah, you know, because we said, well, that's sort of the year that we really became aware of you know, climate change and, you know, the effects of CO2 and so on and so forth. So let's say that that's our baseline year. 
um, and will kind of forgive all of the CO2 that went into the atmosphere prior to that point. But the quid pro quo of that is that you've got to leave all of the forests in place that were in place at the year 1990. And if you cut those down, then because those those pre-1990 forests are soaking up the carbon dioxide from before 1990. Mm-hmm. So if you cut those down, then actually you're liable. You're going below the baseline. Uh, that's right, you're going so below the baseline. So, uh, so, so and, and part of that was, part of the reason for that is that they didn't want an incentive to go around and cut down all the native forests and replace them with fast-growing pine. So we said, bad luck, you've got one of these forests, you know, you cut it down if you want, but you're going to have to pay for that. Right. Um, and and so you know, uh, so, so the you know most of those are are in place still, but um, the issue really is, and and you know you're sort of seeing news stories about this is that people are converting farmland mm. and saying, look, um, we're going to you know sequester carbon dioxide. Okay, it's a good thing on the one hand, um, but we're going to plant it in pine monocultures, yes, because it soaks up the fastest amount, and we can get the greatest carbon credits for that. Sure. Which makes perfect sense. Which makes perfect sense. If you were to plant it up in um, native bush, which actually kind of everybody wants to do, mm. the problem there is you need a lot more land to soak up the same amount of carbon dioxide. So that's that's why that incentive doesn't work. Now the problem, of course, with pine monocultures is there's biodiversity issues, there's uh, soil acidification and erosion issues, there's water issues, you know, there's fire risk, there's a whole bunch of other issues that go with that. So that is one of the things that we haven't yet grappled with properly inside the emissions trading scheme. So there, there isn't a, a distinction between native and non-native planting in the ETS. There's, there's nothing that sort of um, acknowledges that native trees are important in the ETS as it stands at the moment. No, you can... You can Plant native trees and sell those credits. But into there's, the, you know, there's nothing. Uh, there's no extra that's right. consideration. All it does, all it does, is recognise the carbon sequestration. That's, that's it. All it says it does. all trees as trees. All trees it doesn't differentiate yeah. between native and non-native. That's planting. right. And you know, if I was to be fair to the people who designed the system, you know, twelve years ago, whatever it was, fourteen years ago, um, you know, from a pure climate change perspective. You know the urgency here is we've got to get as much CO two out of the atmosphere sure. as fast as we can. Yeah. So that was the view that was taken. But is there, there are, any there appetite, are consequences to that? Is there any appetite for that to to change or that recognition being added into the scheme that there would be yeah, that, some sort of um, recognition of the importance of native forests uh, built into the price? There are. Yes, there are certainly people who are advocating for that. Um, and as a government, we are looking into uh, how do we deal with that kind of issue, right? Because I don't think anybody wants to carpet the entire country in, you know, pine monocultures, especially. But the incentive is there to do that under the ETS at the moment. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a related question. Is there any consideration in the ETS? And if you can speak on international ones as well, which you probably can't. But is there any consideration in the New Zealand one for soil, in particular the tillage of soil? Yeah. We we did an episode a little while ago on soil, which I thought was going to be the most boring episode that we could do, and it probably turned out to be my favourite episode of the podcast so far. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. One of the big things that I discovered is that, um, depending on which academic institution you ask, 
seems like about a quarter of the globe's carbon gets sequestered into soil, mm. but that gets released when you till soil yes. or when you're not doing effective land management, which is killing all of the kind of microbial life that mm. lives in there, which is what happens when you use pesticides and fertilizer all the time and kill the topsoil. Is there any recognition for the the massive part that soil plays in sequestering carbon in the ETS? No, there isn't. Um, but we are looking at it. So there's a there's a quite a big scientific program going on to say, well, what does that look like in New Zealand? Interestingly, in Australia, they do quite a lot with soil sequestration. Um, but at the government level, or yeah, yeah. So they so they they don't have an emissions trading scheme, but they do have a scheme which essentially pays farmers to sequester carbon in soil by changing the way that they farm. Uh, the difference is, as you know, Australia is a very different country in terms of their soils and their climate conditions than New Zealand. And so I think the conventional wisdom in New Zealand has been that soil sequestration works well in Australia because if you can work out how to sequester carbon in a rocky desert, you know, you get massive gains, whereas our soils are already quite high sequestering soils just because of the nature of our climate and, and the soils that we have here. Now, that's also going to be very different in very different parts of the country. Like if you take the Waikato, you know, very deep, rich, loamy soils, probably actually not a lot of potential there. Um, you might take, uh, you know, Canterbury, for example, you know, rocky gravel, you know, it could be quite different there, but it's also, it's rocky gravel, it's not soil. Yeah. So, you know, th- this is kind of one of the issues is, is that it's, is, it's not kind of cut and dried in any given location. Is that an assumption that's being made that's being investigated or do we kind of know in New Zealand already that our soil is on a globally comparable scale kind of soaked in carbon already and there's not a lot of... Let's put it this way. There's opportunity that, there. That's why I said the conventional wisdom. Because I think it, my impression as a minister was someone had gone away and looked at it and kind of said, oh, well, we don't think there's a lot of potential here. And then had said, so therefore we're not going to bother with trying to include it in the emissions trading scheme. You know, just go with what you know, which is planting trees. Right. Damon O'Connor, who's the minister for primary industries, and I have asked our officials to go back and take another look because the science is moving on and you know we keep hearing from people who say, well, we actually think that there are ways that you can get quite big gains in New Zealand. And so we've said, look, we know what the conventional wisdom says and you know we accept that for what it is, but we want to take another look at it. And so we've asked the Ministry for Primary Industries to do quite a lot of work on that. Right. And you mentioned earlier that the New Zealand emissions trading scheme doesn't uh, have built into it a system of recognition where you're doing an activity which normally generates a lot of carbon and you're still generating some, but it's less, Mm. so we're going to give you some credits for that reduction Mm. in the expected amount. Um, I want to use the specific example of regenerative farming. Mm. Is that recognised in the emissions trading scheme because it's kind of that one in particular is a twofer where um, you're both – potentially, if you're doing it really well, sequestering carbon through the action. But the thing that you're actually doing is farming, which usually releases carbon into the atmosphere as well. So you're kind of doubly benefiting yes. the carbon situation and in with New Zealand. A, with regenerative farming, you're not using um, you know, artificial uh, fertilizers, for example, and nitrates, which 
you know, both damage the soil over time and also uh, release nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. No, we don't. Um, and we are also looking at that as well, right? So we've got quite a big program where we're looking at soil sequestration, you know, um, different. It's what, it's what we call non-forestry uh, farming offsets, right? right? So it's kind of like things like riparian planting strips along your riverbeds. It's, you know, shelter belts. Um, it's soil sequestration. It's, you know, all of that kind of jazz. Um, no tillage, uh, um, uh, horticulture. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that are emerging that I think are worth investigating, and I think we've got an obligation to investigate them, you know. And then I think what might happen is some of those things will look promising and think, mm-hmm. great, cool, we'll start to incorporate those over time. And then there are other things you think, actually, you know what? It didn't it's work out ma- as well, much Or as we it's saw. really marginal, right? So one of the issues with soil sequestration is you can sequester all of this carbon dioxide in the, in the soil, and then if you have a drought it releases it all again. And so one of the issues for farmers is like, okay, cool, I'm getting credits under this scheme to sequester carbon, and then a drought comes along, reverses the whole thing, I then have to pay a lot of money into the scheme. While you're probably being dicked over by the drought itself as well. That's right. So, you know, do, do, I, do I want to risk that or, or shall I just plant some trees? You know, yeah. like that, that's kind of the equation that we've, that we've got to get to. But the problem at the moment is – you know, we just don't have clear enough science, and so you can't even make those judgment calls right now. So um, what we're saying is, look, give us a bit of time to investigate these options. We're actually quite keen to find other ways of sequestering carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. You know, there's a whole bunch of options that people have come to us with. Um, we're going to investigate those, and then we'll – and, you know, once we're kind of really clear about what the science says – you know, make those options available. Right. So they're being investigated at the moment. It doesn't seem like it's very imminent that these things be brought into the ETS. This is longer-term stuff. There are some things like riparian planting where because you already know what the sequestration rate of different trees is, mm-hmm. if you can work out a – if you can get the maths right, you know, and the kind of regulatory environment right, because one of the things that it says is because trees – only sequester carbon dioxide over time. You can't if you were to plant, uh, you know, have some riparian planting. You would need to protect that planting over many decades because that's the only way to reap the carbon rewards of that's it. That's right. So then you're looking at things like, okay, then we need to put a covenant around that strip of land and so on. So you go, okay, but that's cool if you're prepared to do that and you know knock yourself out because that, that again it achieves other benefits, right? It's fantastic for water quality mm. and you know all that jazz. So let's. So some of those things could come in quite soon. Yeah. You know, if we can if we can kind of get it right. And there are other things that I think are more speculative, but we've got to keep looking at them and we've got to do the science on them. Is your feeling that these solutions are, are the the types of things that we're talking about, um, riparian planting and um low tillage farming methods or, or regenerative farming, um, would would that fall under the ETS or could there be some whole other kind of mechanism to recognise those things? Or would ah. it be easier, more feasible to put it in the <laughs> machine that already exists? Well, now, here, here's a whole other can of worms for you, Tim. Uh, so currently, um, agriculture is not part of the emissions trading scheme, right? So if, you're, if you own a block of land, farmland, um, you can 
carve some or all of that off and plant forests and put that into the ETS. Mm-hmm. But the bit that isn't in forestry isn't part of the ETS. So I could put a bunch of cows on that bit of land. That's right. And I've got still a you're currently, benefit. Yeah, that's right. And, you're not, and there's no currently there's no liability for the greenhouse gases that come off your largely your livestock mm-hmm. um, or from nitrous oxide. If, and just know. to put that in context, agriculture accounts for, it's over 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions it's about, profile. It's about 48, um, but the vast majority of that is methane. Mm-hmm. And methane is, this, just to open up another can of worms, uh, this is one of those jerseys, like with a pull yeah. one thread and the entire <laughs> totally. jersey falls to bits, right? Um, uh, methane, nitrous oxide, and carbon dioxide behave quite differently in the atmosphere. Methane um, is several times uh, more damaging than carbon dioxide, but it only lasts for a couple of dozen years, right? So it, it actually degrades really quickly. The big problem with carbon dioxide is you're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So every gram of carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere, we add to the total that's already there, and it's going to stay there for centuries and continue warming the planet the whole time. Methane, um, you know, obviously it makes a difference how much is in the atmosphere at any one time, but it because it degrades so quickly, uh, you know, if you it, the, the rate of decline can be a lot shallower. So what what we did last year when we were reforming the emissions trading scheme is we said, look, methane has an impact on the atmosphere, so does nitrous oxide. We've got to put a price. I mean, look, it, let's, let's say it like it is. It seems insane to have an emissions trading scheme and exclude 48% yes. of the greenhouse gases yes. that are being emitted. Yeah, and it, I mean, it causes imbalances in the economy and, you know, da-da-da-da. Um, so the issue, where, where we got to, though, was we said, well, the emissions trading scheme is, uh, when, it's, when it's functioning well, works well for industrial carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite poorly designed to manage the emissions of 50,000 farms around the country. Um, Because they're smaller? Because they're small because of the, essentially because of the nature and design of the scheme. Like it's, it works well if you're a large corporate and you've got a team of people who can be carbon traders and all that kind of stuff who can kind of work out, this is what we need to do and Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, It doesn't work well if, you know, you're family-owned dairy farm in the heart of the Waikato. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just not, not well set up for that. Um, so, uh, what the agriculture sector said that they wanted to do was to have a, essentially a farm level system for measuring and managing and pricing agricultural greenhouse gases. So we said, okay, we'll do your deal. You figure out with us how to make that work. Um, and if you don't, then from 2025, you're in the ETS. Um, uh, and that has to be handled by companies like Fonterra and Silverfin Farms and Sinlay and you know Zespri and and so on, and then they can work with their farmers on how to reduce their emissions. But we're going to price those price those companies essentially for their supply chains, right? That's sort of how how it would happen if we stuck with the ETS. So that's what the legislation currently says is that that's the system from 2025. And so now the agricultural sector are racing towards that deadline, mm. going, we need to come up with an alternative 
where um, every farmer has access to that information and they can see on their farm where are all the sources of my emissions, you know, how many cows, how many sheep, how much fertiliser, blah, blah, blah. Um, but also what, where are all of the places where I'm sequestering, mm-hmm. right? So I've got this riparian strip over here and I've got that forestry block over there and, you know, I've converted, you know, that bit into crops or whatever have you. Um, and then it nets it out. And then if it turns out you're above the line, you get pinged. And if you're below the line, you get a credit or, you know, something like that. So yeah. that, that's kind of what they're working on. Funnily enough, if we've got any small business owners, how GST works. <laughs> if you either get a refund or a bill at yeah. the end of the year. Well, that's well, right? So there are, there are analogies to it. And the farmers are quite keen on this because they really like having control over what happens on their own farm. Mm. And they like having the information to kind of go, oh, so if I dial this lever over here, you know, I can... Yeah, I mean, no, no one wants to get taxed on something they kind of don't understand yeah. how to change the behaviour because the tax is there to change your behaviour, yes, right? There's that's a, right. There's a goal ultimately, but if we don't have an understanding on how to reach the destination, then you just need to get the point. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Then it is just a tax mm. with no benefit to the atmosphere. So that so that's the argument that they make anyway. So um, so we said, okay, cool. We'll we'll work with you to see if we can come up with a system. I'm actually quite excited about it the more I get into it because um, if we do this, we'll be the first country in the world to do it. And um, other countries that produce food, i.e. virtually everybody, um, is in the same boat. Yeah, right? They've all got to reduce their methane emissions. They've all got to reduce their nitrous oxide emissions. And we will have been the country that kind of said, we've cracked it. We've worked out how to produce food, but in a way that reduces emissions over time. Doubly interesting because I had read that our emissions profile, probably because we've got such a high methane content, is um, a lot more similar to developing countries yeah. than it is to developed nations. So we could, with the technologies, if we forge them out of this hopeful plan, yeah, um, then we can export that to developing countries who, who are kind of the ones who are being most disadvantaged yes. by us now going, hey – you know those developed countries who got to develop their economies using coal for the yeah. past 200 years? Yeah. They're all good, but you guys aren't allowed to do that anymore Yeah, and, and lift yourselves out That's of poverty using but coal. But also, I mean, one of the countries that, that we're obviously in quite close contact with is the United Kingdom. Um, and they have said, okay, they're going to be net zero on all greenhouse gases, including biogenic methane by 2050. Their big problem, because, of course, you know, we're talking about the home of the Industrial Revolution, their big problem is carbon dioxide. Right, that's about ninety percent of their emissions profile. Heavily industrialized country. They relied on coal primarily for electricity generation, you know, and so on. Uh, so that's where their attention is. Their attention isn't on methane from their farming sector. But if you look at their pro- so methane only makes up ten percent of their profile, but it makes up about just under forty percent of ours. So for us, it's a much bigger problem proportionately. But for the UK their total volume of methane is actually twice as high as ours from a smaller patch of land. So they have an efficiency problem to start with, right? And so I kind of think even with developed countries, you know, the UK is a food-producing country, what we do here, you know, we can work with them on. And, you know, because we're starting, I mean, to tell you the truth, you know, per unit of production, we're already quite efficient in terms of the, uh, output of emissions, you know, we'll be able to get huge gains in some of those developed countries as well, where you've got industrialized farming, but it's horrendously inefficient. What 
uh, has the zero carbon. Well, what's the zero carbon bill? I know it's not the zero carbon act because it's got a longer name. It's part of another piece of legislation. But what what does the now enacted zero carbon bill mean for our ETS? So the so the the zero carbon bill was an amendment to the Climate Change Response Act two thousand and two. About ninety percent of it is actually the emissions trading scheme. I heard that the zero uh, carbon bill originally was sort of intended to be another law, but it got brought into this existing law so we could keep our yeah. climate change legislation sort of in one place so there wasn't fear of contradictory yeah. acts. That's right. And the, but the other thing that is that the Climate Change Response Act 2002 didn't have any particular overarching goal. It just said, here's how our emissions trading scheme works and we should probably work with the Kyoto Protocol. And so what the Zero Carbon Bill did is it set a high-level purpose and a series of targets into law that then give the ETS purpose. Right. And so the, the Zero Carbon Bill said the overriding purpose of New Zealand's climate change law is to stay within the one-and-a-half-degree threshold of global warming. Uh, and everything now has to flow from that temperature threshold. And it said, okay, if that's your temperature threshold, therefore we need to reduce emissions. Uh, and what we've said is that we want to hit net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, except for biogenic methane, where we've got this longer-term reduction over time. Uh, and then because you want to reduce emissions, you then have what we call carbon budgets, or sorry, emissions budgets, which are five-year blocks of time where you have a total amount of greenhouse gases that you're allowed to emit in that period of time. And those blocks get smaller and smaller and smaller as you get towards that 2050 target. And then it said, and we're going to create something called a Climate Change Commission, which is a bunch of, um, you know, boffins, uh, who will tell us. But importantly, it's independent. Yeah, that's right. So which, politically which independent. it's harder for yeah. a, a new, a change in government to kind of mess with it in a big way. Yeah, that's right. So we, that's right. So that, and this is why it was so important for us to get political consensus on the setup, right? Because what we want to make sure is that we don't have a repeat of what happened in 2008, where you had quite a progressive government under Helen Clark, who were, they built the emissions trading scheme, you know, they were pursuing you know, a carbon neutral government program and, you know, all these sort of things. And then the national government came in. Uh, they had the great financial crisis. They had the Christchurch earthquake and they said, oh, look, we can't load all these costs into the economy and they trashed the lot. So you had these massive swings in climate change policy. So what we said is, okay, well, that doesn't work, clearly. Um, so can we get political agreement on the idea that there's this long-term goal and then there's this institution that will help to guide government policy as we get towards it? Uh, and so that that kind of went through. So then the commission is politically neutral. It's expert led. You know, it relies on scientists and economists and so on to kind of go. Well, you know, here's what we think that you know you ought to do, and here's what your five year emissions budgets should be. And then because you know what your total output, you know, pollution should be in any five year period, your emissions trading scheme should only have. X many units in circulation. Gotcha. And so that's the cap inside the emissions trading scheme. That'll shrink over time as well. I, I want to get into some more individualized stuff because on this podcast, we like to 
try and empower people to change their behavior, yeah. right? It's kind of taking it to the individual level. And what we've talked about so far has um, been at a very high level because yes. we're talking about policy. We're talking about government policy on how to change stuff at a national level and a governmental level. Um, You're also talking about industry. Yes. Right? Like yes. how, do, how but, do companies reduce their emissions? You're not really talking about what we can do. Let's talk about yeah. the, to use market terminology, consumer. <laughs> Hello, consumers. Level. Or people, as I like to call them. <laughs> um, how do individuals um, interact with the emissions trading scheme? Is there. Let, let, let me boil down this question even more, actually. Mm. When I buy a flight, um, there is an option for me to offset the carbon that's yeah. emitted through the course of that flight. A, why is that the only place in my life where I interact with the emissions trading scheme whatsoever? And B, is there any desire, I'm sure there is from some sectors, but in government to just make that de facto and just make that law and build it into the price of flying So and other activity? Spoiler alert. It's not the only place where you interact with the uh, emissions trading scheme. It's the only place where it's visible. I rephrase yes, it. No, exactly, right? So every time you fill up your car with petrol, you're interacting with the emissions trading scheme because uh, there is the industry has absorbed right, the price and, and passed it and along. They, and they pass it along. Now, uh, you don't know that, and, of course, the price of petrol is actually really low. This is why in order to um, provide a price incentive for people to switch from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles, um, the price of petrol would need to increase, and so the ETS price would need to increase to a point where that becomes you know, um, uh, visible. Right? Yes. So interestingly enough, whenever you get on you know, Air New Zealand and uh, if you didn't click that option, the ETS price is actually already in the ticket price because uh, Air New Zealand buys aviation fuel which it already attracts that price. What they're doing is something called the, the voluntary market, which sits in parallel to the emissions trading scheme. Um, and, and it says, um, uh, actually, um, here's how you can go further, right? And what they do is they then go and plant native bush and native trees, you know, around um, in various blocks to kind of, you know, provide that side as well. Because I'll, I just want to poke at this a little bit. The um, bit that they're covering that I don't interact with or see is the minimum. It is the legislative that's right. requirement. That's right. And that's a pretty light touch at this stage. It that is, is, that yes. is. That is not doing anything very powerful to get us to zero emissions. It's not. Although, interestingly, Air New Zealand and other airlines are looking at the price of carbon, which went from $2 a tonne, you know, Five years ago, when you say the price of carbon, do you mean the credits and like the ETS? The yeah, yeah, that's right. right. It was it was actually trading at about two dollars a ton in twenty fourteen when I got into Parliament. It's now trading at thirty eight dollars. Wow, it's gone up f- over forty percent in the last twelve months. So you know that price is rising. Yeah, companies like Air New Zealand are looking at that and they're going, "Gee, uh, price of fuel is going to go up, and that's going to be." quite tough on our business because it's pretty marginal um, and actually fuel is already the biggest variable in in pricing. Um, and so they are quite aggressively looking at things like electric aeroplanes, you know, new technologies. They have a strategy of buying the newest aeroplanes 
you know, from the manufacturers like Airbus and Boeing mm-hmm. because the engine efficiency, you know, with each new model is dramatically an improvement over the previous ones. And because so much of their cost is fuel, that's, that's right. where they're going to make their money. Yeah, that's right. So actually uh, the ETS is having an impact on the behaviour of those companies already because they're trying to squeeze every bit that they can uh, until Airbus or Boeing come up with a, you know, intercontinental electric aeroplane or hydrogen powered or something like that. They're going to be looking at alternative like biofuels and, you know, which again, they're also pretty aggressively looking at. So, yeah, so there's that. But you're right. That's still at the corporate end. It's not at the, not at the consumer end. So there are things in the market that consumers, formerly known as people, uh, can use to guide their own choices, but there's no kind of one-stop shop. Generally, my advice when people say, well, what's the best thing I can do? Um, I would say transport is the area where individuals, families, small businesses can make the biggest difference because that is generally the area where we have the greatest carbon dioxide emissions. And the key to it is basically the fewer trips you can take in a vehicle that's powered by fossil fuels, the better. Right. Um, aviation has the highest profile yeah. of the lot. Right? I was shocked by how I, I did a individualized carbon footprint assessment yeah. through Live Lightly. And uh, what a cool tool, by the way. Another shout out for that. It's incredible yeah. what Auckland Council have developed there. Um, I was shocked that transport blew any kind of savings oh, yeah. I had on like yeah. the things I'd changed about my diet yeah. and um, transport around the city and that kind of stuff. I, I walk a lot. I don't yeah. drive. I catch the bus. But my flights just overtook any yeah. savings I had. Yeah, they do. They do. And and they're, you know, the bit, the I guess until you get new technology, the thing that I would encourage people to do is if you can work out ways to take fewer flights, do that. Um, some people have to travel a lot for work. Uh, where you can, if you can do video conferencing, that'd be great. Um, but if you can, if you can basically offset those flights, you know that's kind of the best you can do until we get new new technology. Um, and so then you go, okay. So if you can't, you know, you reduce as much as you can, um, and you if you can offset the difference between what you reduce and what's left, you know that it's an imperfect solution, but it buys time, basically. And then you do all the other things, right? So don't, just because you've got this big thing, which is quite hard to handle, you you know, do what you can there. Don't then ignore all the other stuff, Yeah, you know? So your ground transport's the next highest area, and actually for, you know, the vast majority of people in the country, they don't actually fly that much, but they do drive a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so fewer trips um, or if you can, uh, or, or trips by, you know, public transport, because what that does is it means for the same uh, vehicle kilometres travelled, mm-hmm. you get far more people, right? So you're basically sharing the carbon cost between you. Or uh, if you're someone who kind of needs a private vehicle to get around because you've got one of those jobs, you're a travelling salesperson or, you know, whatever, if you can switch to an electric vehicle, that's the ideal. And then, you know, there's things at home like your diet, there's, you know, the plastics and um, your food waste and, you know, you can kind of manage all of those all of those things. And, you know, we've been through a process in my household where we kind of go 
quite rigorously through all of the things that we consume on an ongoing basis and we try to find the lowest impact thing. It's quite a fun but quite a difficult exercise. It's a very wonky vision of fun, but I can can get on board. Have you met me? (laughs) No, you're right. I need to get out more. Where have you been surprised the most? Uh, The the area where I've been surprised the most is, is actually in the area of diet because a lot of alternatives are actually highly processed foods. Mm. Right, so you go okay. Look, um, if I want a alternative to cheese because it's a dairy product, you go looking for the non-dairy yeah. version of cheese, and then you look at the ingredients and what's had to go into that and the processing that's required. Yeah, it's. Quite I don't know con- how you turn pea protein into chicken alternative, but they figured it out. Somebody's worked at it's a lot of processing. It's a lot of smart people. In there. <laughs> There's a lot of processing involved, and then in some of those cases. You know, actually, the the kind of the carbon footprint um, of the alternative is higher than dairy cheese, right? Yeah. But it's not easy to get comparisons there, yeah. and so that's one of those things where I, at the moment, I kind of take a, a sort of a generous view of this, which is like in the absence of good information, mm-hmm. just do the best you can, yeah. You know, and follow your instincts. Um, but generally, uh, actually, the simpler a food ingredient is, probably the lower its footprint. That has, Actually, that has been on almost every episode. No matter where we start, we end up with buy organic local food. Yeah, <laughs> it seems yeah. to be yeah. um, the big takeaway. With yeah, with the, the less project. that it's got in it, I mean, it's almost like by definition, right? Of course, the fewer things sense. that it took to get into that thing, and the, the by least, definition, the less the least amount of travel yeah. it did to get to you as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, awesome, James Shaw. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Um, this has been great and hopefully we'll get to maybe another year have a chat to you and, and see how things have progressed and add some some good news to this as well oh look it's going to be a very exciting year uh, It's good. there's going to be a lot of quite difficult conversations to have over the course of the next year um, but I hope I hope this has been helpful and you don't get a whole ton of email from angry scientists going oh he got that completely wrong <laughs> this has been very helpful for me so thank you for stepping me through it Appreciate thanks Tim it.